Beaches, welcome to this another Buds on Film podcast. I am Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale. Greetings. Right. I nodded my head because, of course, it works so well on radio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are indeed Fuds, well, I certainly am. <laughs> uh, we're missing Craig, who's currently in transit and can't be with us, but uh, I'm sure he won't, won't mind us cracking on without him as we talk about some of our favourite superheroes, Batman and Superman. We are going to basically give you the rundown on all of them. Well, I say all of them. All of the live-action film. Because if we talk about the entire range of adaptations of Batman and Superman from the comics, then we'd be here forever. We're not going to be talking about some, even though there are some very good animated series and animated feature-length films, we won't be talking about any of those. We may touch mildly on some of the television stuff, but we don't tend to cover that particularly here either. The series has gone all the way back from radio productions to some very early television shows indeed, uh, one of which was the subject of 2006 Hollywood land in a way, uh, as it was a film focusing on George Reeves, who was the first incarnation of Superman to be seen on the screen. George Reeves, in that case, played by Ben Affleck, who, of course, is currently lighting up cinemas in Batman vs. Superman, which was essentially the reason why we're doing this podcast at all. So there's an interesting little bit of pub trivia for you, someone who has kind of technically, if you squint at it, played Superman and Batman. We're just going to crack straight on. We're doing this more or less chronologically, and if you're going chronologically, the first feature film that I'm aware of comes from us from all the way back in 1966, where we talk about the Adam West Batman version. Uh, and I suppose, if nothing else, it gives us a, an opportunity to recognise how very much this franchise has changed over the years. Uh, Just a little. Uh, yeah. It's uh, got an ever so slightly different tone now as, <laughs> uh, as then. Yeah, so the 66 outing is very much rooted in golden era silliness. It takes a very tongue-in-cheek take on the material for a camp comic effect. Although, now I say that, um, I'm saying tongue-in-cheek compared to what Batman is today. I suppose at the time it might actually have been capturing the tone relatively well. Uh, but yes, certainly lots of silly comic stuff going on here, including the now thoroughly beamed shark repellent spray. <laughs> uh, the plot. I don't think we need to concern ourselves too much. You have Catman, Penguin and the Joker and the Riddler all teaming up to dehydrate an analogue of the United Nations Security Council, which really just gives them a, a chance to run through their trademark stick before Adam West vanquishes them, along with, uh, of course, the, the boy wonder, Burt Ward. I must say I rather prefer these kind of Batman things in TV episodes length if I must watch them. Um, the joke wears a little thin by the end of this film's running time, uh, but it's done with such good nature that you'd have to be a right old grumpy person to really take much issue with it. It's harmless, paper-thin fun, but it's very much footnote to the rest of the films, to what we will be speaking of and that. Yeah, and the Batman feature-length film from 1966, it was just an extended episode, really. There was even a great change in production value or anything. Not massively, anyway. And, yeah, it's just like a longer episode. And they are, like most of those episodes, they were daft fun, very much made for a different time. Or maybe a less cynical age. Yeah. I know it was in the middle of the Cold War, but the 60s and free love and come up in the space race and stuff, there was a different vibe going on, I think, which had changed in the United States after Vietnam. But pre-Vietnam, it was a different time. And it's not something that holds up particularly well now, I feel. No, I, no. I don't have a lot of patience for any of these. I've tried watching a couple of episodes a few years ago. It's the sort of thing, I like reading recaps of them more than I like actually watching mm. them myself. It's when you hear schemes like one of the Joker's plans was to turn all of Gotham City's water supply to jelly <laughs> <laughs> and apparently somehow gain money or something from that. But of course it was foiled and I think Batman shouldn't have foiled that one. I think that would have been quite, quite a laugh. Yeah, that's less harmful than... 
for instance, <laughs> wanting to do things to the water supply in, for instance, Batman Begins. Uh, yes. It's much less sinister, uh, <laughs> altogether lighter in tone. And I think it's one of the clearest differences is just how well, silly they are, really, whether that was conscious or not, where everything since, really, particularly since the Tim Burton one, even though there's a, a distinct cartoonish look about the Tim Burton Batman, everything from then on was so much grimmer and darker and more self-serious. Mm. And in the Adam West film, it's like they were aware of this thing called colour that has <laughs> largely been forgotten by now. Yeah. Now, I think they were a bit too fond of colour because largely try to use every colour in existence at the same time on the screen all at once. <laughs> and it's a visual nightmare sometimes, but it's so much lighter and almost to the point where you could think it wasn't the same character at all. Yeah. But it feels kind of odd lumping them in with the or lumping that film in with these other ones because there's a similarity in tone maybe for instance Superman's are a little lighter but similarity in tone with a lot of the the films we're going to talk about subsequently and this okay. one it just it stands out it's like a sore thumb it's so different from these others yeah like like you say there's, there's a bit of this showing up in for example Superman 3 but not to this extent. <laughs> At no point is Superman running around with a giant sort of cartoonish bomb trying to dispose of it in places and coming across an increasingly bizarre places of uh, vulnerable people that he cannot possibly throw his bomb at. It's just very strange. More the pity, to be honest, given yeah. that Superman 3 and particularly Superman 4 could possibly have done with that. <laughs> yes, yes. But it's one that's worth talking about because it exists and it's the first big screen adaptation of Batman, but it's almost a different character. It's almost a different world, different universe even. Yes. <laughs> Although, I mean, I do have to remember is that obviously Adam West is the best Batman ever and he's not going to let you forget it. <laughs> a tip to anybody who's ever watching any programme that has Adam West as a talking head, unless you want to hear Adam West going at length about how brilliant he was, don't watch it. <laughs> Okay, so from the first big screen outing of Batman, we come to the first big screen outing of really the archetypal comic book hero, the real original Superman, who had been on TV with George Reeves, as we mentioned, brought to the big screen in 1978 by Richard Donner. Now, perhaps it's the first really great comic to film translation. There was a 1970s Spider-Man movie, which is best forgotten, mm. and a few other efforts before that around about that time you had the Incredible Hulk on TV at least and they all felt a bit silly they were all really more in the vein of Batman um, Adam West one rather than any of the films we're going to talk about uh, Richard Donner's film gives us Marlon Brando sending his only son from the doomed planet Krypton to Earth where you have superpowers that I would imagine everybody's pretty familiar with yeah. <laughs> and really if you don't know what Superman can do. I assume you've been living under a rock and should probably just concern yourself with getting some sunlight, first of all, mm -hmm. and not listening to this podcast. But they do vary a bit depending on the needs of the various film plots. But quick backstory of Superman, just to briefly cover it to make sure you are aware. He grows up in a small Midwest town after he's found as a baby after being sent to Earth by his dad. Heads off to Metropolis in his cover identity of Clark Kent to join the Daily Planet as a mild-mannered, bumbling reporter and then unveils himself to the world as a defender of truth, justice and the American way. And then his most difficult task in the film is to deal with the self-proclaimed criminal mastermind of Lex Luthor and his plan to drop most of the western coast into the sea 
to increase the value of his soon-to-be coastal properties down to turn desert into beachfront, which is a suitably comic book villain's villain scale thing to do. Although it being more and there being more than one Superman film based on the idea of real estate seems such a strange thing. The fact there's even one of them, yeah, um, <laughs> it's an odd one. It's it almost doesn't fit with the the grandeur of the idea of Superman. It's um helps that is played by such a, a good actor. We don't in fact get to that till quite late in the film, unfortunately. So it's a bit of a waste of Gene Hackman's talents, but Gene Hackman's always watchable. Mm-hmm. However, the rest of the film stands up pretty well to this day. And actually, I mean, because of it's like you know front projection system that you'll believe a man can fly. Watching that again though, it's not awful by any means. Mm. It was cutting edge in the day. I mean, okay, on high def you can see that it's a blue screen, but to be honest, some of the CGI efforts of even 10 years ago don't look as good as this does now. Yeah. Yeah, so it still cuts a fairly believable fine effect because of attention to detail and the physical components, the wind through capes and dresses and stuff. But yes, it's the reason that this is so fondly remembered is that Christopher Reeve was great in a role. Yeah. Uh, casting that worked really well. The tall, handsome man who managed to convey both like the bumbling reporter and the true identity of Superman. The whole idea of nobody recognising Clark Kent was always silly, but the fact that he's playing these as two different cards, he's playing them well, works very well. Chemistry with Margot Kidder's Lois Lane um, worked well. And you watch Reeve shrinking from the bold Superman to the timid Clark. It is a joy to behold. And yeah, again... It's a stretch because see this man who looks exactly like Superman. Mm-hmm. He's definitely not Superman, right? No. <laughs> okay then. But it's you know, it's just he brushes his hair differently, it's just a pair of glasses. But he is just such a likable guy in the film and he's great to watch. He just captures your attention. And it's what makes Superman possibly, although I think maybe I would argue for Superman too, actually, the high watermark for Superman in film. And it's actually about, about two and a half hours, I think, Superman Scott, isn't it? Um, yeah. And a good hour of its origin story. Yeah. Um, and actually, the origin story in Superman is really interesting. It gets a bit much because nowadays you feel like every second superhero film starts with an origin story again. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have about the 18th Spider-Man by in a couple of years' time, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the one in Superman actually is still pretty entertaining, even if it does have a fairly lengthy section of Marlon Brando chewing the scenery. Yeah. Um, it being crystal scenery isn't going to do wonders for his teeth. <laughs> it was the real class. I mean, it had John Williams' score, which I'm not going to say is particularly memorable because I think me and Colin with about 90% of the planet at some point starts humming the Superman march and it turns into Star Wars halfway through. <laughs> But it's still year after Star Wars, John Williams, memorable, fairly memorable score, good scope, special effects that at the time were great, still don't look awful today. A really great central character, so it's, it just is a was a really good way to bring Superman to the big screen. Yeah, I, I would argue if you judge this against any other film that has yeah special effects as some kind of fairly core mechanic of it, I'd say Superman holds up better than almost all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does look pretty good, as I say. Just just goes little little touches of attention to detail, detail that you can do with physical effects. And yeah, surely the projection's a bit ropey these days, but it's not so bad. Um, it's still perfectly believable. And as we say, just some really great performances. A lot of great chemistry between Lewis Lane, Mark Kidder, uh, his character, and Reeve himself as Superman and Clark. Some really good kind of play from those two characters in two different, uh, you know, with... Well, three different characters, if you like, <laughs> as yeah, so somewhat different relationship between Lewis and Clark and Lewis and Superman, and they capture that very well. I thought, and I really do like watching 
uh, Reeve kind of bounce between the two roles. It does. <laughs> it, when he's doing it, I do almost believe that you might not <laughs> notice that it's just the, the only difference is a pair of glasses and the location of the underpants. Yeah, I, I like it an awful lot. I think it's still perhaps Superman's best film. No, yes. Um, I said, I don't think I would argue. And we'll come on to that very shortly. I would argue that Superman 2 is, for me, a more entertaining film. Um, you know, it does have the issues of that. There have been two very different versions of it because of the mm. saga of making it. But the second one had Terrence Stamp as General Zod. And for me, that's the that seals the deal. Yeah. But uh, Superman is very entertaining. The only genuine issue I have with it is it just, apart from well, it being a bit to estate agent based really is the rewinding of time yeah that never sat well with me it always seemed a step too far uh, what could we do superman's great deus ex machina if we spin the planet backwards time will reverse and uh, never comes quite sure that. that works out yeah no but uh it's, it's other than that yeah deeply entertaining film it stands up better than most other superhero films it's certainly nearly 30 years later special effects still passable still entertaining and importantly, Reeve's performance by Reeve is is still great, uh, still very watchable. As I've mentioned uh, quite a few times now, I think it's time to just move on to the second Superman film, which came just two years later in 1980. Now, it had a confusing and controversial production history that might indeed warrant a podcast all by itself. Richard Donner, director of Superman the movie, is replaced by Richard Lester in the director's chair, except sort of wasn't replaced. It's very complicated because some of it's actually directed by Richard Donner and uh, it's Hollywood politics. They're not really much fun, especially when they tend to ruin films. So Richard Lester comes in, restarts the production originally designed to be shot simultaneously with the original. It's obviously quite closely tied into the first film as a stray nuclear blast releases the three Kryptonian rebels imprisoned at the film's start who head off to cause havoc on Earth headed by the legendary Terrence Stamps General Zod. And that's a truly iconic role. Before whom you should kneel. Yes. (laughs) Meanwhile, you have Lois Lane who has figured out Clark's big secret because she's the only person in the world who's got a proper (laughs) prescription for glasses or something, I think. And the two have become romantically involved leading to Superman giving up on his superpowers in order to live a normal, happy, mortal life with Lois. Just as General Zod pops up in the White House and proclaims himself ruler of the world. Gene Hackman also returns, uh, with Lex Luthor having escaped prison and figured out the location of Superman's Fortress of Solitude. And with him being more than willing to share that information to ingratiate himself with the new overlords with the questionable fashion sense... Now, Richard Lester takes a somewhat lighter tone than Richard Donner did in the first film, with a little more slapstick working its way into proceedings. Whether that's to the film's detriment or not, I think, Scott, that you think not necessarily. I am not sure. But it's not in danger of becoming like an Adam Sandler film or anything like that. So it's not uh, something that's particularly ruining it. It remains uh, an enjoyable and good-natured entry into the series that, well, uh, for me, better than the predecessor. Particularly the director's cut, Richard Donner's cut of it, actually, I prefer... But they're both very good. It's a shame, though, I really like the the somewhat fractured nature or largely messed up nature of the production led to a few continuity snags and scenes that don't flow quite as well as the original. It's very much worth watching. Another one that holds up well. Again, I think less because of the effects and even the story is not fantastic in either of these two films. But it's the performances because yeah. Margot Kidder and Christopher Reeve continue to be very, very watchable. Gene Hackman is 
it's not the best release I've ever had by any stretch, but he's Gene Hackman. You could watch him all yeah. day. And then you add to that the amazing Terrence Stamp. General Zod is one of the great comic book villains. I don't think he gets the credit he deserves for just how awesome Terrence Stamp is, isn't it? So it's those things, particularly performances, that just make it so make it stand up so well. Quarter of a century later. Yeah, like I say, all the best, all the memorable films, uh, scenes in this film are Zod-related. Not to disparage the rest of the stuff, but Reeves still great, Margot Kidder's still great, but Terrence's stamp really does just kind of run away with all the actual charisma in this film and is uh, just him getting to grips with Earth and his new superpowers and all these kind of things. Lots of nice little scenes that are, yeah, they're a bit slapstick, but I think most of them kind of work as being reasonably funny and dialed back enough that it just kind of lightens the tone a little bit without necessarily screwing everything else up, which we'll get on to in a bit later. As I gotta say, for my money, it's almost as good as the original. I'm sure I've seen Richard Donner cut at some point, but I couldn't find it when I was re-watching for this, so I was stuck with the original DVD release from some time ago, which was the unholy Donner-Lester hybrid, which <laughs> it's still okay. It's still, it's still pretty decent. Uh, it's what I base my opinions on, but yeah, you can tell. It's very obvious scenes where they've got, they have to have a stand-in for... Guys like Gene Hackman who would not come back to uh, reshoot anything under Lester's role, and I think I think Margot Kidder was the same. So there's some very strange continuity glitches going on through it, but yeah, it, it doesn't really distract from how good the film is. So you can see where they've papered over the cracks, but they've mm. at least done a decent job of papering. Yeah, but uh, yeah, if you can get a hold of the Donner cut, that's probably the way to go. So it took three years for. The next film to pop out, but uh, with Superman 2 performing pretty well at the box office, there was presumably very little resistance to Lester returning to direct another outing that does take a much more broadly comic tone. Uh, slapstick from the outset with a pretty execrable title sequence loaded with buffoonery. Uh, but this time, <laughs> Superman's dealing with monopolistic business tycoon Ross Webster, played by Robert Vaughn, and he's leaning on computer savant Gus, played by Richard Pryor, to boost his business with schemes such as hacking into computers, controlling a weather satellite, and using it to affect cops in Colombia, displaying a worrying difference to both how computers and weather satellites work. Weather satellites don't create weather. That is not how it works. Once it's clear that Superman's able to stop their ploys with some ease, they concoct some artificial, almost kryptonite that doesn't kill Superman as they intend, but instead turns him into a super douchebag. This leads to a systemically puzzling, but nonetheless pretty awesome, good Clark versus evil Superman fight, a concept shamelessly reprised in Fight Club. That is, however, along with Reeves' continued great portrayal of Superman's good and bad, Pretty much the only awesome thing in the film. I can't quite get on board the hate train commonly ascribed to this film, but it's certainly got its negatives. Gene Hackman not returning due to his uh, fallout with the producers over their treatment of Richard Donner didn't return for the film, and this could have been treated as an opportunity to do something different with an enemy, but instead you get a pale imitation of Lex Luthor. Somewhat more successfully, Margot Kidder, who also was reduced to a cameo role, allows uh, old childhood flame Lana Lane, played by Annette O'Toole, to take over the love interest duty, which is a good idea but falls a bit flat in execution. The chemistry isn't really there, certainly nothing like on the level with 
uh, Kidder and uh, Reeve. So most of the heavy lifting to keep this film entertaining has actually been left to Richard Pryor, who does the best I can imagine anyone doing with this material, but it's really not anywhere near good enough to hang with the previous two installments. Still, with the benefit of hindsight, it's tough to be too dismissive of Superman 3, given what will follow, but it's certainly <laughs> nothing that we can recommend. Yes, I'm thinking too that um, when you're you were talking about you can't quite get on board with the hate train, um, mm. and I can't either. It's, it's somewhere between a bad and mediocre film, but yeah. when Superman 4 exists, really you really want to save your hate for where it belongs. Yeah, there's there's a certain baseline, and this is not it. And I do remember being... It's one of the few films as a kid that actually scared me. You know, there's always like people have like strange things they've glimpsed in some film that's freaked them out. And the one thing that, that got me in this one, which looks absolutely laughable today, is towards the end when uh, Ross Webster's sister gets kind of captured by that computer and turned into a sort of cyborg, which looks like the most ludicrously cheap effect that you could see now, but for some reason just absolutely freaked me out as a kid, and it was a, one of the few scary things in it. But um, strange to think what you look back on and see what your what your foolish kid mind was doing. But uh, between that, and there's one sort of vaguely memorable exchange between Pryor and Vaughn about socks, which is also there. But yeah, other than that, there's not an awful lot to really like in Superman 3. I don't think it is the worst film. It's certainly not the worst film we'll talk about in this outing, but yeah, it's, it's not all that far off it, and we certainly can't really recommend this to, to anyone. No, I think I don't have any vitriol for Superman 3. It's just a, one of your bog-standard bad films. For me, yeah. it's more forgettable than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe I liked it more as a kid or just that I happened to have the poster. Um, but I do remember <laughs> having a poster of on the wall of the computer and the, like, the machine that they use in the cave. It's just a bit poor. I don't remember it particularly well, so a few years since I've seen this one now. But I also, it's just a bit poor. It suffers clearly from losing cast members and I don't particularly rate Richard Lester as a director. Now, Apparently one of the issues Richard Donner had was he thought that Richard Lester, particularly in the second film, was a bit mm. too fond of comedy, which is strange from the man that brought us the Lethal Weapon series, but okay. <laughs> and I think Superman 3 is on the verge of getting a wee bit to 1966 Batman, actually. Um, yeah, there, there's some really silly bits with uh, like Richard Pryor having a, a little accident with uh, skis from, <laughs> when he goes the wrong way off the Richard Vaughn's rooftop ski slope, which he has for some reason, and <laughs> skis down the side of a building and somehow lands perfectly fine. It's, eh, mm-hmm. Come on. <laughs> I mean, it's got issues like that. For the most part, though, it's just... It's like, uh, it's a bit rubbish and then don't think about it beyond yeah. that. Whereas, yes, there are other places you want to really direct your anger. Yes, speaking of which, another few years down the line, 1987 brought us Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, with the Salkins figuring that the Superman thing had kind of run its course. Production duties fell to another party. Lolan Globus, two words guaranteed to strike fear into the hearts of anyone old enough to remember trawling through blockbuster video. Uh, they did, to be fair to them, take a few risks by filming things like operas and such like, but in the main, their legacy composes of such grade A clunkers as Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, the American Ninja franchise, Life Force, He-Man, Masters of the Universe, and of course, Superman 4, <laughs> a joyless, wildly underwritten film that I can absolutely get on board the hate train for. <laughs> 
Uh, after mulling it over, Superman decides that nuclear weapons are intolerable and starts rounding them up and launching them into the sun for disposal. However, this plays into Lex Luthor's newest plan to enhance his arms dealing business by creating a compliant, superpowered nuclear man, played by Mark Pillow, who's tasked with destroying Superman via some highly questionable science that the franchise feels <laughs> seems so fond of. They fight, and Superman wins. Sorry, spoilers. Somehow, this meagre fare stretches out to an hour and a half. Margot Kidder and Gene Hackman return, so on a superficial level at least, this looks like a Superman film, but the grunting one-note nuclear man is as uninspired and boring an antagonist as could be imagined. And he's also clearly solar-powered, not nuclear-powered, so grossly misnamed. Just when you think you'd have remembered everything bad about this film, you remember that Doofus from Two and a Half Men was in this, which at least proves that he's never been funny. This film deserves the same fate Superman bestows upon the nuclear hated to watch, launch it into the sun and divert your eyes from it. I guess I can see where they're going with this. One of the problems with Superman is being that he is essentially immortal and how are you going to beat him? And so the concept of having a, another superpowered villain to kind of beat him up, just again going back to the Superman 2 thing, I kind of see why they were doing it, but it's just so cack-handedly done <laughs> with what has to be about a tenth of the budget of the original Superman film and about a tenth of the talent going into the writing and execution of it. It is just a, an absolute horror show of things. Really, really terrible. Even uh, Reeve apparently was taken. No, actors decided at the start of this film and tell them, look, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> just, just so they knew they weren't going to get their hopes up. But uh, there's not really anything at all to recommend than this. Even Reeves kind of doing it by the numbers by this point. It also didn't do particularly well. Reeve kind of blames it for really putting the halts on his uh, career at that point. It was a bit, of a, a bit of a bomb and it did deserve to bomb. It's not very good at all. Certainly no one involves uh, high watermark and something that's best left forgotten. Thanks. I never saw this when it was new and I only, I've only seen it once and I saw it for the first time when for some reason I watched all the Superman films again a few years ago and I just sort of slack jawed at just how awful this was. Yeah. Nuclear Man has so little charisma he could well have been played by Dennis Quaid <laughs> and the story is paper thin. The acting is, what's the word really? Fish. Yeah, but it's more to do with like why, um, because she's so uninspired because <laughs> so there's nothing for the actors to get their teeth into at all. It's, it's so underwhelming in mm. every possible way uh, it's just a genuinely bad film it's badly written uh, if they bothered writing it at all I think you could argue that no no they didn't imagine like, the premise of the film could be summed up basically in, a, in one sentence as, as much as they wrote and somehow they got funding for it yeah. it's bad performances complete lack of story complete lack of charisma no peril nobody really cares it's it is a a bad, bad film, and I think we should stop talking about it now. Yeah. Apparently, they left about an hour of it on the cutting room floor. There was going to be like another nuclear man that was that was done before it, but you know, Superman bit quite easily, so they made another one, which was the one you see on screen. And dear Lord, why why would anyone write or shoot any more of this film? Dear Lord, why couldn't they have left all of it on the cutting room floor where it belongs? Yeah. Most appropriate. So I think we're done with Superman for a little while now. We're going to move on to Batman. 23 years after Adam West brought him to the big screen, he was brought back by the much more distinctive, if not to everybody's taste, talents of Tim Burton. Now, this is a much darker film. While it's cartoonish and it's still full of bright colours, it somehow still feels in every way much darker than 
the 1960s version. Maybe we should start, though, by recognising the phenomena that Tim Burton's adaptation starring Michael Keaton was back in the dying days of the 80s. And Batman and all the the money and the toys and ways of getting you to hand over your hard-earned pounds were everywhere handled with the sort of fair view respect of a Star Wars release. Coming within a decade or so of Star Wars really realising how much you could milk merchandising for. It was described as a dark gothic take on the subject matter reflecting the changed tone of the comics it's sourced from. Uh, that's it's only really the case when you compare it to the Adam West version to the 1960s because yes it's still very comic book looking it's pretty campy in its own way I mean Jack Nicholson entertaining as he is does dance about a bit <laughs> yeah. like Cesar Romero there are definitely similarities there so uh, rather than dive straight into Batman's origin story though it's quite cleverly weaved in throughout the film with an origin story of the Joker memorably played of course as just mentioned by Jack Nicholson as he's betrayed by the crime boss he ultimately usurps before unleashing a deadly poison backed wave of fear across Gotham that means you can get straight to the bat action although it's rather bat dated by this point in particular the bat suit and it still looks quite good but clearly there's no range of motion at all because in many of the scenes Michael Keaton looks like a statue yeah he can't move so it does lead to a lot of fight scenes of people running into Michael Keaton's fist because it's about the only thing they could do it's like a poseable <laughs> action figure rather than a man <laughs> now the production design is yeah it's pretty amazing it's very distinctive it's very Tim Burton and whether you like Tim Burton or not I happen to for the most part like him but his style generally very very distinctive and that really helps you it's Tim Burton's Gotham is a very distinctive place like a sleazy 1920s 1930s New York aesthetic you know, it's never been more atmospheric although yeah, it's nowadays if you try to watch it again on a high definition television it does look a bit shoddy mm. um, Michael Keaton is okay as Batman I've never been a great fan of it although well I will say when I watched this again a few years ago too I hated it right. I really <laughs> hated this film well maybe hate's a little strong it was so distinctive but I just, for some reason, it just never worked for me. And Jack Nicholson is entertaining because he's Jack Nicholson. But it's, I just never really liked the, this take on Batman. Now, in their set, Michael Keaton's fairly entertaining and he does one of the better jobs of feeling different as Batman and Bruce Wayne. Jack Nicholson's entertaining, as I say. Kim Basinger is Vicky Vett. She could more or less be left out of the film entirely. And she mm, does much yeah. of use in this. Yeah, it's got a distinctive look. And so it has merit in those cases that it's a, a film that clearly maybe you don't like it, but you can see that it has a style. It's got a character and a presence, unlike, for instance, Superman 4. <laughs> but uh, for me, just I just don't like... Batman I just found it a bit boring yeah I still find enjoyment from it but as you say it's, it's essentially the, the Jack Nicholson show isn't it it's, yeah, it's, it it's all revolving around his gurning the Batman I, I do really like the way that it's structured and the way that it doesn't have to bludgeon you with an origin story and it can really just sort of tell that over the course of the film rather than having to front load all of it and I think that actually does lend a bit of intrigue to it which otherwise it doesn't have the story itself the main plot once you get into it is a pretty straightforward and the action scenes don't cut it anymore. They really don't. Even like the driving scenes, which are better than the fight scenes, given that the limitations we spoke of earlier, but they're still not all that great. There's, I've always found something a bit strange about this. The Burton era of Batman 
doesn't seem to really care so much about the whole not killing people and aspects of, of his persona, which has become such a, a central part of what happens later on. And it's not so much that he's, you know, actually shooting people, but certainly he'll, he'll, people will go flying off buildings and he won't be that bothered about trying to save them or anything like that. I actually think, sorry, Scott, just to interrupt you a bit, because I think exactly what you're talking about just now is one of the reasons that I dislike it, because... Having come back to this after like the Nolan era, um, yeah. I haven't not seen it in so many years. Although you could quite easily argue that the Nolan films have like weapons and stuff, and I'm not that caring as much perhaps as he claims to about not hurting people. In this Tim Burton Batman, at some point, like the Batwing, well, this may be Batman Returns, but the, I think this one, the, the Batwing is firing machine guns. Um, yeah. That's not how Batman's supposed to be and it's one of the, it's the wee bits like that contributed to me not liking it I think yeah. um, that's maybe a sort of a conversation for people who are more familiar with the comic books than I am though yeah, that, that is the one thing that, that strikes me across all these Burtonier films where it doesn't really seem to have much of a... It doesn't care much about Batman as a character. The way that the Nolan years kind of fixate on how he's becoming the mask and all that stuff that we'll get onto uh-huh. later on. This film, he is just a man who fights evil and has cool toys and a silly outfit that would <laughs> that he wouldn't really be able to bend over and get into that Batmobile in the first instance. But yeah, so it, it, certainly in terms of what came, came later, a very simplistic take on it. Uh, I still... As I say, I still find there to be some joy in there, but yeah, it's definitely overshadowed by a lot of things. I feel it's worth watching, but it's you know mid-table in the kind of things we were talking about today. I think where it wins is it it has a distinctive character, whereas I mean, look at like Superman the movie. What was distinctive about that is the the acting the the character of Superman. What's distinctive about Bat- Tim Burton's Batman is like the actual character of the movie and the Gotham is. And if you really dig that aesthetic, then I think you're going to get a lot out of that film. Yeah. And it's so that it's memorable from that point of view. It's just that what happens in that setting, I don't find particularly successful. Yeah. Okay. Now, Batman was pretty successful. Certainly successful enough for Warner Brothers to get Burton and Keaton back three years later. And with the primary villain in this installment being Danny DeVito's quite memorable Penguin. It's a somewhat bizarre take on the character. Because what they decided, rather than it just being like someone who dressed in such a way and had a, a passing resemblance to a penguin, it's sort of like somewhere between Dr. Moreau and Tarzan <laughs> of the Apes of penguins, uh, <laughs> with the character seemingly able to actually communicate and command penguins, because why not? I mean, actual penguins, not robot penguins, actual penguins, who are living in a sewer for some reason. I don't know whether that was like based on that urban legend of alligators yeah. in New York sewers <laughs> or something but with you know a more comic animal yeah. but <laughs> yes and there also seems to be a strong suggestion that that's why I mentioned Dr. Moreau that somehow the penguin is actually part bird <laughs> why not anyway uh, after a life of living in the sewers he hatches a plan possibly from an egg he laid himself being part <laughs> penguin along with his gang of circus goons he wants to blackmail the rather shady business tycoon Max Schreck, the ever-watchable Christopher Walken, into helping him return to society. Which is strange because he was never really part of society, but there we go. Meanwhile, Max Schreck's attempted murder of his doormat of a secretary who digs a little too deep into his plans gives rise to Michelle Pfeiffer's split personality Catwoman. 
an acrobatic loose cannon who has her own agenda and while it retains the strong sense of production design in terms of the set and characters the plot can't really survive the final act deployment of a literal penguin army <laughs> i don't know though actually the idea of a literal penguin army <laughs> amuses me greatly far more than the film managed to do but <laughs> perhaps the most surprising thing about the script is the volume of double entendres single entendres perhaps it's weird, though, by today's standards, how cartoony everything is around it. To see those rather crass adult moments shoehorned in. Now, it's definitely a step down from its predecessor because when I said maybe I hated Batman, I don't. I hate Batman Returns, though, because it, the la- again, the last time I watched it, I was just genuinely so bored by it. So again, maybe I used the word hate too easily. It's perhaps not appropriate, but it's again, it's got this this really strong aesthetic and just never for me really uses it it's got christopher walken who really maybe just should be playing max soren in this film yeah um, <laughs> i, I kind of think that's what they wanted it feels like that at times and i think it might be more entertaining if it was max Soren. it might have saved the film a little catwoman it's just i don't know i don't really get her i know she's bit sort of affected by the attempted murder so maybe character motivation is not quite the right way to put it but car doesn't feel that good the penguin's an actual penguin (laughs) (laughs) and it's another spurned opportunity because it has such a strong aesthetic and michael keaton perfectly watchable and it's just that i don't know had it actually gone stronger you know hole in and if the whole film on a penguin army (laughs) i might have for entirely the wrong reasons really have enjoyed this film but it's yeah a step down from batman which is tolerable it's pretty boring for me scarily though for a film that i'm saying that i'm considering using the word hate towards much much better than what followed it yes by no means the the low tide of the franchise i have some grudging respect for batman returns it's it's mainly because i I still think it looks really nice uh, in the same way that batman does i just really like that as you say i really dig that aesthetic i I like the way these films look uh which will soon become ruined but yeah there's an awful lot of things in batman returns i cannot get behind you and largely it's the penguin his how he looks what he is and how he acts all of it it just doesn't make any sense to me i don't understand how why this is in in the film and i certainly don't understand why a lot of people seem to really like batman returns and think that it's better than the first one and those people are on crack i cannot for the life of me see what is better in this film than the other one just uh, i do like catwoman i like the kind of interplay between batman and, and catwoman that goes on but there's certainly no, nothing like enough of it to actually save the film i like watching christopher walken but as i say he's he's as a effectively a minor character in the film and yeah because so much of it is centered around the penguin and danny devito's character just doesn't cut it for me and i don't like it on that basis so yeah certainly a step down for the first film batman forever followed three years later and is one of the most annoyingly titled films in, in my life because it's very clear that the fourth film in a Batman should franchise Batman should be called Batman Forever. Forever. It's yeah. just so bloody obvious. Shrek <laughs> managed it. They had Shrek Forever After as the fourth one. Is yeah. how, how do you screw this up? I don't understand. But anyway, new rooms well, are just be grateful that they didn't realise at the last moment to call it Batman 3 Ever because <laughs> that would probably happen nowadays. Yeah, Batman 3 After might work, I don't know. Uh, at any rate, new brooms all round as Joel Schumacher takes over on direction duties and Val Kilmer, of all people, slips under the cowl, aided for the first time by Chris O'Donnell's acrobat-turned-vengeance-seeker Robin after Two-Face, played by Tommy Lee Jones, kills his parents in a plan to flush out the Bat's secret identity. With that foiled, uh, Two-Face teams up with Jim Carrey's Riddler, a mad scientist with a grudge against Bruce Wayne, who is busy convincing Gothamites to purchase a new 3D TV, which 
which has the side effect of draining their brain power and feeding it to him. Kilmer's convincing enough, actually, for, for all that. I think he does actually a pretty decent role as Batman in this film. And his interactions with O'Donnell and new love interest Dr. Chase Meridian, played by Nicole Kidman, are all well done. But the side is rather let down by the bad guys. The action's decent enough, and let's be honest, it's actually much better than anything that happened in the, the last two films <laughs> due to the redesign of a suit so that people can actually move in it. But the continual carry gurning combined with the continual Jones gurning is just grating. Also, while we're told repeatedly of Two-Face's split personality, I don't think it's actually once ever shown, and instead it's just lots of shouting. Um, <laughs> When I watched this again a couple of weeks back, it is actually, I have to admit, more enjoyable than I remembered it being, but it's still pretty damn bad. <laughs> There's some joy to be had from Kilmer's performance. I think it's uh, it's surprisingly competent. The action's okay, but Jim Carrey, Tommy Lee Jones, chewing far too much of the scenery for me mm-hmm. to really get behind. Still not the low watermark in the franchise, but still doing a pretty damn good job of getting down there. Yeah. It's a pity. I really like Tommy Lee Jones. Um, and I think you can give him something a bit better to work with. And he's actually going to be a really entertaining bad guy, um, mm. which you don't get to see him play often. One of the big problems for me with this film, though, is Jim Carrey. Because the problem, you have to ask yourself any Jim Carrey film, two questions. One, is Jim Carrey in it? Yes. Okay. Not necessarily a bad thing yet. In this film, is Jim Carrey Jim Carrey? If the answer is yes, don't watch it. <laughs> Unfortunately, in this, he's very much Jim Carrey. And the it's the gurney that just drives me crazy. It's why I've never gotten on with him. Hmm. It's frustrating, Jim Carrey, because when you have a director who can actually rein him in, even with something when he's a bit Jim Carrey's like in Bruce Almighty, if there's any sort of restraint at all, it becomes a bit more watchable. Proper restraint, like in... Um, Man in the Moon Yeah, he's actually good but in this no yeah. he's basically just you've got Joel Schumacher who either thinks what he's doing is the right thing for the film or is completely unable to control Jim Carrey and this is just after Ace Ventura isn't it so it's when Jim mm. Carrey was really big yeah. um, and sort of probably harder to control and he's just I, every time I, I just think about this film all I can think about is just him gurning and gurning and gurning to the point where mm. I can almost remember nothing else about it and it's not a good thing to remember. The film does get one bonus star for having our boy Don the Dragon Wilson in it as he <laughs> commands his bizarre army of neon clad ninjas which uh, Robin tries to beat up but yeah other than having Don the Dragon Wilson in it uh, yeah not worth not worth digging out. We'll shift down <laughs> down down deeper and down Batman and Robin Few years later, 1997, Schumacher's back again and he continually shifts the tone into all-out cartoon for this follow-up. Uh, we're following Arnold Schwarzenegger as he dons a ton of makeup and prosthetics as he becomes Mr. Freeze, a scientist who put his beloved terminally ill wife into cryosleep until he can perfect a cure, which is one of the more interesting villain backstories, but any interest in this is quickly wasted into turning him into another one-liner spewing diamond thief which he needs to power his gadgets. He soon enough teams up with Uma Thurman's Poison Ivy, who's another corrupted scientist who's now able to control vegetation and wants to destroy humanity and give plants their day in the sun. It's up to Batman and Robin to stop them, and this time round they're also aided by Alicia Silverstone as Alfred's niece, who steps in as Batgirl. Chris O'Donnell returns, and he's still perfectly acceptable in his role. However, Batman has been recast as George Clooney. 
George Clooney, really? Uh, much <laughs> as I like the guy, he's wildly miscast here and he doesn't convince in the slightest as either Batman or Bruce Wayne. Doesn't convince at all. Gotham has been given a strange, wild neon infusion which clashes terribly with the expected atmosphere and the plot's occasional attempt at drama is undermined by the continual horrible puns. Thurman perhaps escapes from this best in the femme fatale role and again, the large action sequences are largely okay but it's still pretty much a career low for everyone involved. Mm. Uh, I can't bring myself to hate it quite as much as I used to. Uh, I did a review of this back in our one-liner days and when I read back I was surprised at how much vitriol I was able to Mm. muster for, well, anything on celluloid actually, but yeah, I I can't hate it as much uh, as I used to, but still, it is the worst film we will talk about here. It is the least rewarding way to spend two hours that we'll talk about in this episode and yes, I heartily recommend that everyone just forget about it. Batman Robin, I have in fact avoided, so um, if I've taken your advice, I've sent it back to myself in the past because I've never seen it and don't particularly want to. <laughs> and I like George Clooney a great deal, but even yeah. then, when, when I only really knew George Clooney from ER, yeah. it's like, George Clooney is Batman? Really? <laughs> really? It's a very strange one. It does sound like a few missed opportunities, though, because actually, Mr. Freeze with the, like the sort of being corrupted because he was just like, desperate to find a cure for his wife. Actually, that is an interesting idea for a villain. Yeah. But then you're saying it just becomes like a. It's, it's like, oh, Arnie's famous for one liners. Let's make him do lots of silly one liners then. Yes, it is very quickly forgotten about. And then you just have him going around, ha ha, eyes to see you, ha ha, and assorted such things. It's, yeah. yeah. Not, not good. Right. It seems that by the fourth film of both of the Superman and Batman franchises, they had entirely lost their way. There was a break of almost a decade. And then I think with probably as a response to things like uh, Spider-Man starting up in some of the Marvel and the X-Men and the Marvel properties began to get popular. I think DC and Warner Bros. decided to dip their toe back into the water again and start bringing their iconic characters back to the big screen. So... Superman and Batman were getting geared up to come back. For Superman though, rather than reboot entirely, they decided to make more or less a fifth film in the series series that had begun with Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve, of course, at this point had had his spinal injury and I think possibly even dead by the time Superman Returns was released. But it follows on more or less from what is like a continuation of the character. Mm. So now I think at the time... And I actually thought you'd felt the same, Scott, because I'm sure I remember this conversation that uh, Superman Returns was like more or less okay, but kind of felt in some ways like the 1978 Superman again. Mm, yeah. Uh, and I had some hope for it too, because it was directed by Brian Singer, whose two X-Men films I'd liked a great deal. And obviously with his The Usual Suspects, one of my all-time favourite films, I thought, yep, Superman, probably in pretty safe hands here. It's, and I watched it again just yesterday too and it's very meh it's not something that really stands up to re-watching again now I think Scott to you unlike me watched this back to back with Superman 4 so maybe that makes it look better than it might otherwise have been in contrast yeah nothing, nothing like that to force a reappraisal of your memory <laughs> <laughs> there's always a huge gulf in uh, both talent and production value behind both but yeah it's not without its problems yeah so yeah actually not without its problems structurally and narratively well it's a little slippery because it's trying to be a sequel to Superman 2 I think it's largely trying to forget Superman 4 it's sort of trying to be a reboot but there's too much continuity of character and it's 
there's no way that Brandon Routh is not styled to try and look as much like Christopher Reeve oh, yeah, as they yeah. possibly can. I think possibly you could argue that doing a straight up reboot may have been the better thing to do. Well, let's talk a bit about the film first. This is the title implies Superman Returns because some astronomers have apparently found the remains of Krypton and they just gloss over the fact that it took Superman thousands of years as a baby to get to Earth because it was so far away, but within five years he's there and back. Okay. Uh, Science is not the strong point of a Superman film, so perhaps (laughs) forgive it that. But he's flown away to the remains of Krypton to see if anything or anybody is left. And when he comes back, he finds that the world has not, in fact, gone to pot, as you might have expected. It's sort of carried on. It's like, oh, Superman, I think I remember him. Uh, And particularly this is the case with Lois Lane, who has won a Pulitzer Prize for writing a piece called Superman, Why the World Doesn't Need Him. Not that she's bitter at all about him leaving. So when he returns, and he returns to work at the Daily Planet as Clark Kent, he finds that Lois is married to Daily Planet worker Richard White, the nephew of the editor Perry White, and has spawned a young boy, as he discovers by kind of becoming a stalker, rather than the paragon of virtue he's supposed to be. There's not much time to unpick that dynamic, however, as a recently released from prison Lex Luthor, played here by Kevin Spacey, has discovered... Or rediscovered, yes, this bit threw me slightly because he's been there before but had to look for it again, um, the Fortress of Solitude, and stolen some of the magical sea monkey Krypton crystals mm. and is planning on using them to create a new continent because apparently basing one film around real estate wasn't enough. <laughs> this idea that it would base this film around real estate again and apparently creating this new continent will sink North America. Okay, so a bit like the first film on steroids. Uh, it's it's not a bad film. It's on watching it again. I would have to say it's pretty mediocre though. The special effects for a film that's only ten years ago don't stand up anything like as well as a film from twenty years before. It. Mm-hmm. I think because it's so obviously CGI and that has in so many times been shown to age so very badly. Yeah, with the nineteen seventy eight film, you could see that. Yes, the, the special effects weren't particularly sophisticated, um, but you can clearly see here is a person. You can see this is a real person doing the real things. <laughs> yeah. The older, when you CGI, you just see it's like, uh, yeah, it's the CGI character. You kind of just lose interest in it. It tries, does try to take a bit of a darker tone. And, you know, so yeah, but it sort of fits nicely with the take at the same time it was happening with Christopher Nolan's Batman series. It's, yeah, a bit mediocre. It's got you... Um, say to me that you describe it as a bit flat mm-hmm. there's no real chemistry between any of the leads and Brandon Routh nowhere near as compelling a performer as Reeve I think they, not that Brandon Routh isn't capable of a decent performance not that I've seen him much since Zack and Mary make a porno but in that Chris, uh, Kevin Smith film he's actually funny for the small amount that he's in it mm. Here, yeah, I think they cast him more because he looked a bit like Christopher Reeve than for any other reason, which is a pretty weak casting decision. Yeah. And he's just nowhere near as compelling as Reeve. He doesn't have any of uh, Christopher Reeve's charisma. Maybe one of the things that's worth watching is Kevin Spacey chewing scenery, which I didn't like to see that much, but sort of fits in with the way Gene Hackman took on the role. There's not a great deal of energy on screen. And the... The story itself is entirely forgettable. So, yeah, when something remarkable happens, it feels rather ordinary. 
And yeah, maybe saying that lifting an entire continent should feel ordinary says quite a lot about how lacking in motivation the film seems. It's just, I was going to say bland, but I don't think that's quite the word. It's just, it feels on rewatching it a decade later, uninspired. Yeah. It's not a bad film. It's got reasonably high production values and some of the special effects haven't aged well. At the time, they were probably fantastic, cutting edge. It's just, there's no, there's no zing about it. Um, yeah. There's nothing from the characters to say. There's nothing to mark it out as a Brian Singer directed film. Kevin Spacey, who has in so many things so great, kind of wasted here. But there's nothing, there's nothing bad about it. It's not Superman 4, but it's just a film that's just like Superman Returns. Uh, yeah, probably saw that once. And then you never think about it again. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to the tone. It, it's never quite been cracked how you can try and leave her the tone of a Batman film, especially how, how dark that franchise got with what Superman seems to be best at. You know, One's dark, one's bright, and trying to make them two into the same film has really just been an exercise in trying to make Superman as dark as possible, and I don't think it really works all that well, mm-hmm. and that nut's not been cracked to this day, which we'll get on to later on. All that said, I Superman Returns is you know fine, as I say, I could take it or leave it when I watched it in the first instance when it was released and I've not really thought about it until a couple of weeks back, so I suppose I left it. Um, but the, as I say, touched on earlier, when you watch this back-to-back with Superman 4, it's clearly miles ahead of that. But yeah, there's just not a lot of charisma, there's not a lot of heart on screen. It's, it's a perfectly competent film in what it's doing. I think even, I'm not so concerned about the, the the cg even i think it's it's all fine it's a fine film but it's very difficult to get excited about it because no one on screen seems to be particularly excited about it mm-hmm. um, i think a lot of people did criticize this when it came out it's going oh nothing happens in this film and that's not the case lots of things do happen in it as we say <laughs> superman lifts a small continent it <laughs> yes. is it is very big things happen in it but it just doesn't feel like an event somehow. So the word has occurred to me. It lacks enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. From all involved. And the problem too for me that I'm just thinking about a wee bit more now is that, I thought about this before in the past, Superman for me is a bit boring. It's mm. kind of hard for his character not to be, because he's a god. There's no genuine way to get any real peril for him. And then like the only way they can like weaken him is, oh, how are we going to make Superman fun? Oh, Kryptonite. Again? Mm. Well, she, oh, Kryptonite. Oh, okay. Carry on. Kryptonite it is then. Which is why I think, or at least one of the reasons why for me Superman 2 is the best because in that case, he becomes vulnerable in a much more interesting way because he has someone of equal, possibly even greater power than him. Yeah. Someone of his own species. is like a genuine rival and that's where the danger comes in. That's where the the weakness and vulnerability of Superman comes in. It's like, ah, right, this makes sense. And it's not some silly crystal again. And it's, obviously, you know, it's a Superman film. Superman's going to win. But because there's an actual equal match to him, it's like, ah, right, okay, where where does this go? Whereas, like, in every other film, it's like, well, he's a god. And what, what can you possibly care about them happening? There's nothing that can hurt him. Yeah. Uh, and I think Superman Returns suffers from that same sort of thing again because it's, well, it's kryptonite again, is it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah, kind of by the very nature of his power, Superman is essentially writing himself into a corner in every film that he's in. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, that that is a problem with it. So between it just being a bit flat, and uh, I think it, I've never quite got behind how it's 
sort of a sequel, sort of isn't kind of thing. It, it, it's like it's trying to have its cake and eat it because you know it's, it, there's other points that doesn't make a lot of sense, like Spacey having to continually like trying to refind. Uh, forces of solitude and then kind of say you know but hey have you been here before and then it's, it's almost like turn to the camera and wink hmm. you know it, it just it doesn't seem to have its own story straight it can't decide whether superman's a, a, a proper all-american superhero or if he's someone that goes around stalking people with his superpowers which is weird <laughs> it can't decide whether it's properly a sequel or if it's you know kind of a sequel or if it's trying to be a reboot and not quite nailing it uh, you know, the, narratively, I think it's it's trying to be much more complicated than it really needed to be, and all that just kind of got in the way of telling the actual story you want to do. And I think you could, uh, I mean, do you really need to show Superman's origin story and these kind of things, which is something we'll probably talk about in Man of Steel later? It's surely you can just assume that knowledge and just go into the proper story and not have to kind of fiddle yeah. around the edges with it. It does a sort of, I was going to say Star Wars, it's nothing like Islam, but it begins with uh, an opening like on-screen text with saying, you know, where Superman's been. And so it's assuming at that point that you know who Superman is, but then still feels the need to add in a flashback for his origin story again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's quite mixed in that it doesn't seem to know what it's doing with itself, which so as well as a lack of enthusiasm, it does seem to have a bit of a lack of direction. It doesn't seem to, yeah, it's a bit all over the place. Right, so jumping back a year chronologically, uh, 2005 bought us Bratman Begins, which is another descriptive title. It covers, as it does, the kickoff of the Nolan-flavoured Christian Bale-starring Batman universe. Well, we've not really mentioned it. I suppose we should cover it. Uh, the Batman's origin story, of course. Bruce Wayne is orphaned as a, a child after a random bucking goes wrong, leaving him with a burning need for justice slash vengeance. After determining that he's not going to be able to do much against crime as a young rich kid, when he comes of age, he eventually goes off around the world in a quest to understand and beat up the criminal elements in society, eventually coming to the attention of Raz Al Ghul's League of Shadows, which I believe is a particularly hard-fought pub football league. Through the power of amateur soccer, they teach Wayne the secrets of the ninja and general badassery, but Wayne leaves in dramatic bridge-burning style when they inform him of their plan to destroy Gotham, as it has become an unsalvageable den of scum and villainy. Bruce, however, is convinced that it can be saved, so he dons the Batsuit along with other Wayne Industries prototype military equipment and goes to work on the mob, meeting with some success. At least, that is, until the League shows up for revenge and a spot of light Gotham destroying via Scarecrow's powerful psycho gas. While there's a number of great elements in Nolan's stints, I think the one that stands out to me most in Batman Begins, uh, and probably should be mentioned first, um, we could treat all of the, the three Nolan films as one and kind of talk amongst them, but we'll split them up a little bit. But for me, what stands out most in the first instalment is Bale's outstanding performance. It's compelling enough even to make his silly Batman voice <laughs> convincing. And also the tone Nolan's created uh, is also remarkable. It's not exactly realistic in the Dogma 95 sense, but it's as close as you could feasibly expect for a film. And crucially, his choice to use practical effects wherever possible, uh, despite the seeming impossibility of many of them, has given this film and all the following films a real heft that reliance on CG cannot provide, just as we were talking about there with Superman Returns. As a result, Batman Begins looks as convincing today as it did a decade ago, and you can't say that of the likes of, well, Superman Returns or King Kong or any of these other events sort of driven CG showreels. Batman Begins still looks absolutely fantastic to this day. Absolutely hugely compelling action scenes all you know, feel really impactful and you know pack a real punch. Probably goes without saying for that. And 
well, spoilers, all of Chris Nolan's Batman films are brilliant. And certainly Batman Begins is an incredibly strong start to the franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just uh, I'm going to respond first to your point about the effects too. It does help a lot. Again, it's why I think the 1978 Superman effect is still a bit. It's because, yes, the, the front projection, it does look a bit dodgy and you know it's just a man lying on a table while wind blows him, but you can see that there's a man there. There's a human yeah. being there and it makes so much difference. Uh, and even at the time, King Kong looked awful to me. Mm, I yeah. really thought it looked horrible because it was just lots of CGI and it did not look um, appealing at all. Uh, it's obviously something Christopher Nolan particularly likes. It clearly came to its zenith in, in Inception with that incredible fight in the elevator and the, the weightless section yeah. with all the walls turning over. But... The um, yeah, it started off in Batman Begins really, and followed it through this whole Batman series, and it makes such a difference. And it it grounds it. again, as you say, it's not it's not realistic in the way that this could actually happen. Um, yeah. that, as much as that you could really believe this could happen, but it comes as close to it as you can with while still having it be a superhero. I think, and it's one of the reasons I find it so compelling. Yes, Christian Bale's voice is much derided, and it's a bit silly, hmm. but at the same time, you've got to think. Well, he is trying to make himself not appear like to be Bruce Wayne. So yeah. maybe disguising his voice might be a smart idea too. You know, he blacks up around the eyes, he changes his voice, he covers himself in a mask. And unlike, you know, Clark Kent, who's clearly Superman with his hair brushed differently, uh, you could believe that this is a different person. So it's, that's actually, um, there's a reason for the voice. Yeah. And... And it's like they do other, almost, I think, I don't know whether conscious or not, but I was thinking this when you mentioned earlier, Scott, about how Michael Keaton couldn't move in his bat suit. Yeah. Uh, they go to pains in the Batman Begins, um, or films begin with Batman Begins, to show you how they designed the bat suit and even like mention about movement and be able to turn his head and things. Yeah. Um, possibly as a response to the fact that Michael Keaton looks so stiff in his bat suit. But it's, yeah, it's so close to being grounded in reality and it's actually why I found, and I don't read comic books, so I don't really know how they are in the, the actual, the original source material, but it's why certainly as a filmic character, I find Batman far and away the most interesting yeah. superhero because like the conflict in him and that too, but that it's not, he's not a magic person. Yeah. He's a capable, intelligent, well-financed human being who's using technology and skill and determination and things like that to do these things. And the villains for the most part in Batman Begins and the Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises are also human beings. You know, in the comic books, uh, Rachel Ghoul can uh, be resurrected, etc. There's no suggestion of that in Batman Begins. So it's again, everything is so much closer to being grounded in reality and it makes it much easier to engage with, I find too. And the, okay, maybe like the, the magic stuff that's been put into the water supply is a bit comic book, but still it's a bit better than, you know, trying to create a new continent from a bit of crystal and then lifting it out of the sea. Yeah. There's still a patina of believability about that. And I think that really does help it. Yeah. And as you're saying about the effects, I mean, you can only imagine that the meeting, the production meetings where he goes, how can we conceivably, you know, convincingly make this Batmobile drive across the top of some roofs? I know, let's build a Batmobile and some roofs and drive one across the other. Yes. <laughs> Planning on a kind of scale that we've not really seen before in a lot of things, oh, films like this and uh, it really does help make it a special film and yeah the, the tone we've criticized some of the, the superman films for going darker in tone but of course the dark tone really helps 
Batman's character. It's what mm-hmm. he's about. Yeah. You know, he's he's clearly someone who's conflicted and beaten up and uh, in a bad place psychologically, and that kind of plays into the kind of tone that's created and the, the darkness of the film, and that does help, I think, uh, bring out a lot of the conflict in uh, the Batman character, and really helps make him a more interesting uh, protagonist, certainly than someone like Superman, who's basically got no bothers about anything until we throw some green lumps at him. Uh, yeah. yeah, because Bat, it's, it's why, because he's not magic in any way or a mutant or anything, he's a human. There is nothing inherently special about him other than yeah, he's got this determination and he's got some skill which he can work on and he has a lot of money. But he's yeah. a human <laughs> being, which makes the peril more real. It makes yeah. the stakes more interesting. And then he also, I think actually Batman Begins compared to the the subsequent two suffers a little in that some of the the scenes, particularly at night in Arkham, have that feeling of being on a soundstage or mm. looking a bit not real. Whereas the subsequent films mostly feel like they're in real locations. Yeah, Batman Begins does a fair bit of that. It doesn't rely on CG and it being centered with like, like real humans in real places. And everything just feels so much more grounded and it just makes it a much, much more compelling film. Uh, not just a superhero film, just like a genuinely good film. Um, yeah. That, And I know lots of people who don't, for instance, my, my parents, etc., don't really like superhero stuff or anything like that. And b- because this is so not superhero in the way that like an X-Men film or something is really really like this there's a lot of people feel that way yeah again i remember reviewing one of these films i think it was batman returns but it applies to all of them that uh, compared to all the rest of the films that were kicking about at the time this made all of them feel rather silly mm-hmm. uh, it's, even the good ones even like your what would have been high watermarks at the time things like perhaps spider-man X-Men or x-men and spider-man too i think yeah at that time yeah and much as i still like those films they feel like silly comic book movies in a way that this doesn't even though it's clearly it is a silly comic book movie but it doesn't feel like that at all because it treats no. its subject with uh, far more respect and has actually gives them a kind of character arc that they could work off and gives actors something to do which is mm-hmm. and when you get an actor as good as christian bale inside the role good things happen yeah i mean then yeah you should have so christian bale uh, all three of us at fudge and film are, are big big fans of christian bale and always have been he's great then you have michael kane um mm. who's fantastic and is that he's only a supporting character in this but i think it's among his role as alfred's among the best things he's ever done yeah because there's a there's a genuine chemistry between him and christian bale yeah he also he's a character with sympathy but also humor and you can believe you genuinely believe that he cares about bruce wayne so you just it all works together you have really good writing you have great practical effects you have good settings good cinematography solid direction excellent direction then you have just character motivation and enthusiastic and good actors too yeah i mean there are some bits that possibly i would change in batman begins i don't rate katie holmes much although this is possibly the best thing she's ever done maggie gyllenhaal who replaced her in the dark knight is a much stronger actor yeah maybe the only real beef i have acting wise in batman begins is tom wilkinson because for some reason again people keep casting tom wilkinson in roles (laughs) where he has to do an accent and he can't do accents yeah, <laughs> this is possibly not his fault. Then it's actually the casting director or something. But other than that, yeah, everything is just it's so well cast, so well written, so well acted, so well directed. And it's just again, you don't, you can't just say in terms of comic book films. It's just a genuinely very, very good film, a genuinely yeah. excellent film. Yeah, you don't need to judge just what on the scale will be. You have to do with the well, in my opinion, most of the Marvel films, for example. Uh, it is just a really great film. 
Exactly, exactly. Yeah. All three of the Nolan films, I would say, like, I think you said too, Scott, you consider them excellent as mm. films, not as superhero movies or anything like that, as yeah. films. In my opinion, the strongest films of each year they came out. It's, for my money, the best trilogy of films that there's been. Yeah, I would. Yep. I, I can't think of anything stronger as a trilogy than the Christopher Nolan Batman films. Mm-hmm. Unsurprisingly, this was a comic book film that had a sequel. In this case, legitimately so, because Batman Begins was A, very, very successful, and B, really, really good. So three years later, we returned with the same cast, same director, same quality, quite frankly, uh, for The Dark Knight. Now, this is a few years into Batman's campaign against organised crime in Gotham. The mob bosses are on the run, and citizens of Gotham appear to have rediscovered some hope, particularly the district attorney Harvey Dent, played here by Aaron Eckhart. There does seem, however, to have been a bit of a response to Batman's upping of the ante in the form of Heath Ledger's Joker, the iconic film of the Batman franchise, who was teased at the end of Batman Begins. And, oh, sorry, actually, just I'm going to stop for a moment just to also praise Gary Oldman in, in the Batman Begins. I should have mentioned him. Again, he's somebody else very capable of chewing the scenery like a lunatic. But with the exception probably of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, I think his role as Commissioner Gordon has the role of his lifetime. Mm. And it's just like everybody is just in such good form in this trilogy. And with that aside over, the Joker has arisen and he goes on a spree of crime and violence aimed at bringing down the bat, but also showing that... There's corruption in Gotham's people itself. He seems to have set himself on showing that Harvey Dent can be corrupted. This leads to Batman taking the fall for Dent's crimes as Dent loses his marvels after his the love of his life is killed and he becomes the horrific Two-Face. Uh, the strengths of Batman Begins are still evident. But the show is stolen by Heath Ledger's Oscar-winning and Oscar-worthy performance as the Joker, redolent with menace, strange tics, and a general otherworldly psychopathic charm. And for me, worlds apart from Jack Nicholson's Joker, but also uh, substantially better. Mm. Although perhaps it's not really fair to compare them because they are so very different in tone. Yeah. But Ledger alone would be worth the price of admission. So the supporting cast continued to be excellent. Gary Alton I've mentioned, Michael Caine I mentioned earlier. Maggie Gyllenhaal replaces Katie Holmes. She's a stronger actor um, and she's really, really interesting as Rachel. And and in the love triangle between Harvey Dent and Bruce Wayne, she feels like she's actually an active participant and isn't just what might happen in a lesser film of it being the woman that's up to be won by the two men. She feels like a genuine character in that that actually has a a role in it for herself rather than being a prize. It's generally regarded as a high point in the series. To me, it is. But again, why rank them when A, you want to watch them all um, anyway and that they're all so good. It's a bit of a futile exercise. It's, yeah, it's just a film where everything again like Batman Begins just seems to work very, very well. It's just so well made. Yeah. I really have pretty much nothing negative to say about this film at all even when it was sort of handicapped a little by Heath Ledger's premature death and them not having had all the TV they might have wanted from him you can't tell it's so well crafted that you can't really tell those things yes it's just a wonderful film really enjoy it I'm gonna I'm gonna go on and praise Heath Ledger an awful lot but as 
just wanted to reiterate what you said. It's, it is one of the, the most well casted films. Uh, the whole, se- well, both all of the franchises, but all the actors are really showing up on the Ray game. As you mentioned, uh, Gary Oldman and Michael Caine, they're all doing really great stuff. Even Silly and Murphy is terrific as a scarecrow in the last film. So I won't batter on about that too much, but Heath Ledger is just fantastic. Uh, just the, the portrayal of the Joker is so like it's just so great. I can't really say enough about it. All these little weird ticks he's got, the occasional kind of a, that that way he kind of licks his lips every now and again and sticking his tongue out. The the magic trick, of course, of making the pencil disappear is obviously the obvious highlighter <laughs> to go for, which was such an incredibly impactful moment. And it's so simple. All these other little things that you kind of notice when you watch it a few times as I have the the way that he almost never actually looks at anyone he shoots things like that. He's always like pointing his gun, running away from people as though it's of no consequence to him whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these lovely little bits and. Uh, a lot of which were, of course, improvised. Heath Ledger famously threw himself into this role, you know, locking himself up in hotels for you know, fortnights at a time to kind of perfect the laugh that he would have. <laughs> Other little character tricks that they've written for him, things like the the way he, well, as he puts it, he, if he's going to have a past, he'd rather it be multiple choice. Uh, and <laughs> how he's kind of seemingly just contemporaneously sort of whiffing out these uh, origin stories for himself that kind of keeps you guessing what 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 is this guy doing what's his motivation and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you never really get a handle on it with the closest i guess is alfred's summation of you know some some people just want, want to see, to the, see world the world burn, burn. yeah uh, which is, and yeah, what, what a tremendously enjoyable character and the sort of he's do, admittedly doing the sort of things you wouldn't really want to be admitted to being entertained by but it's just handled so well can't can't say enough about his performances. It makes what would be an otherwise pretty good film absolutely something special, compelling. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are. I think um, there've been a, a number of different Jokers over the years, but there, I think there are three really iconic ones that are the ones worth mentioning. There's Mark Hamill's Joker in particularly the Arkham video games and the animated television series mm. uh, that has its fans in it. Mark Hamill, when he's playing the Joker, clearly having an absolute hoot. Very entertaining. There's Jack Nicholson Joker, beloved by many, although for me he's the, the third place of these two. But then there's Heath Ledger's Joker, which is just head and shoulders above anything else. Yeah. An absolutely fantastic performance in a really really well written role that looks like he's having a lot of fun with it not in the same way that say Mark Hamill does his Joker is deeply entertaining because Mark Hamill's having a hoot doing it Heath Ledger's is more restrained than that the interaction between him and Christian Bale like for instance in the scenes when he's being interrogated yeah in that um, room where they're locked in together it's just it's a fantastic role. It's such a such a good villain, and honestly, you can't keep them because they are so different in tone. But I think it's probably even better than considerably better than Terrence Stamp Zod. Yeah, these two. But it's such a good one. Obviously, the biggest pity for him being dead is that you know he's dead and he had the family yeah. and friends and yeah. things. But it would have been nice to see that character come back. Or yeah. do something else but this Dark Knight probably the high point of the trilogy but I don't really want to divide them much but I love them all and we'll watch them all repeatedly everything about it and the, see, the franchise in general series in general is just spot on I know we keep saying this but it's true the casting's so good and the, the action and the direction everything seems so well honed and it's even just like objectively to see something done so well is a nice thing indeed 
So we round the trilogy off in 2012 with The Dark Knight Rises. It's set some year later. Batman's still seen as a villain, but he hasn't needed to put the cape on for a while. The laws that have been inspired by the mythology of Harvey Dent's unimpeached character has swept criminals into jail by the boatload, and a beaten up, broken down Bruce Wayne has withdrawn himself from the world into a wing of his mansion. He is, however, prompted to rejoin the world a little when someone who turns out to be Catwoman, played by Anne Hathaway, seems to be stealing his family jewels. Who are Mrs. But she's actually just after his fingerprints for use in the film's main antagonist's plan. That being Bane, played by Tom Hardy, who is described as a mercenary, but before long he's unveiling himself as the leader of a resurgent League of Shadows. Although his backstory and relationship to Ra's al Ghul is a little more complicated than that. Bane's on a quest to finish what Raz started, firstly by breaking Batman's back and throwing him in a deep dark prison, and then by holding Gotham hostage with a fusion bomb, trying to blow Gotham up after he instigates a reign of anarchy and suffering under the guise of this being a redistribution of power to the common people. Who will stop him? Well, Batman, though obviously, <laughs> sorry for the spoilers. Um, while I guess the general feeling is that this is the weakest of the three films, I feel that using the word weak anywhere near this trilogy is entirely wrong-headed, as I think the thing that really stands out, I won't go over things like the, the effects work and all that stuff, but it's just as good as it has been all the other films. Uh, perhaps better, again, again, a practical effect that involves actually destroying a plane, just because then you can see that someone has actually destroyed a plane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, It deserves a lot of credit, but... Um, yeah, that's that's as strong as it ever has been. But I think the most uh, the thing that stands out most for me in Dark Knight Rises is the way that it completes Batman's arc as a character. How he's gone from you know needing vengeance to kind of I mean broken down, and then finally finding some redemption at the end. And I think that makes it the one of the best and most satisfying conclusions to any kind of superhero film that we've seen. You know, when it gets to the end, it does feel quite emotional. It does feel like mm-hmm. he's he's Absolutely. gone on a journey and gets there. And uh, if you can, I mean, if you can sit through Michael Caine's, I, mean, I think I've seen this film about five times now, but if you, if you can sit through Michael Caine's speech at the end, talking about how he's failed, uh, without tearing up, then there's something wrong with you. I think, <laughs> I, think yeah. you, I think you may have had your emotions severed or something I, like I that. I think you're broken as a human being if you yeah. can resist at least a, the feeling of a tear in your eye at that point. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I don't suppose we need to spend too much time on it. It's got all of the same strengths as the other films have for me, and it really is just a great trilogy of films, and this is just as good. And, of course, it's, it means that I can do pain impersonations now and again, which makes it, of course, fantastic for everyone, not just yes. me. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned, Scott, that it's been described as the weakest, man. Well, that's, I would say, least brilliant, uh, rather than weakest, <laughs> yeah. to, to put it in context. Uh, you mentioned Bane's voice, that's like Christian Bale's Batman voice is another thing that's been much derided but it's this, brilliant perhaps, it's really great I love Payne's voice I, don't know I love Payne's voice too I mean, but in this case I think maybe it's the one that's more legitimate because whereas with Batman Christian Bale is <laughs> modifying his voice with Bane it's the one thing that's sort of set sits slightly apart from the rest of the things of being in place when the voice is clearly coming from but it's not like there in that time but I really like the voice so it's fine for me but it's a it's a criticism of this that I will not disagree with if people don't like the voice that's fine I, I get that yeah. for this but for me it's great the other thing too you mentioned like it coming to the end of the story arc it really does the character arc finishes and it, it makes sense it fits it feels good and also while you could maybe cynically suggest that with the transferring of the handing of the the mantle over to Joseph Gordon-Levitt at the end of the film that that's like setting up for a sequel genuinely to me it doesn't feel that way it just feels like right this the world or Gotham at least needs Batman 
it's not going to be Bruce Wayne anymore. It's going to be yeah. this other guy. And that fits with the story and character arc. And it's not set up for a sequel. It's just that the character, the legend must continue. And that's what Bruce Wayne has put in place. And it just, it feels neat to me in a way that other films that feel like deliberately set up for a sequel don't. It, it really doesn't feel like that to me. It's just the whole thing is from beginning to end, from Batman Begins in 2005 to The Dark Knight Rises 2012. The whole thing seems well thought, well crafted. And it just feels complete and satisfying in a way that few trilogies can be. Yeah, in a way, I'm glad that the whole uh, DC Universe thing that they were trying to kick off with Superman Returns didn't work out here because it would, I think, unavoidably have messed with the ending of this film Mm -hmm. and would have made the whole trilogy weaker just by kind of, it probably would have to have petered out somewhat by the end and still have Batman running around in some form with Bruce Wayne. And I think it's much stronger to actually just kind of tie his arc up in a bow and then start fresh with uh, some new new things later on so yeah it, i think it, it turned out to be the right decision even if it was one that was more forced upon them than actually made for dramatic um, uh, reasons it's such a great trilogy of films and uh, yeah if for some reason you've got this far and haven't seen all these batman films then go what are you doing with yourself go off go off and watch them immediately and come back mm-hmm. to us and thank us later so after the success of the batman trilogy and christopher nolan in particular and with uh, DC and Warner Brothers casting envious eyes over Marvel's direction. They did want to begin their own cinematic universe, this time not based on Superman Returns. They decided to reboot Superman. So in 2013, we got Man of Steel. So Superman Returns had been released to more or less widespread apathy. So with it being overseen creatively by Christopher Nolan, Watchmen Zack Snyder was at the helm and Englishman Henry Cavill donned the cape for the all-American hero. Although this time a decent chunk of the film was devoted to Russell Crowe's Jor-El back on Krypton. After the ruling council ignored Jor-El's warning that the planet is about to explode because apparently there's only one scientist who could work this out in an advanced race of super beings, but let's not dwell on that too long. A faction of the army under General Zod, played by Michael Shannon, attempts a coup. While this fails, seeing them banished, there's no stopping the planet's destruction and all Jor-El can do is fire off his son to Earth in the same way that Marlon Brando did in 1978. He's then raised by Kevin Costner's Jonathan and Diane Lane's Martha Kent instructed by a sensibly paranoid Jonathan to keep his superpowers hidden to the extent of rather pointlessly sacrificing himself in a sneak tornado attack rather than allow his son to save him. That does seem a quite weak reason for Clark to go off on a journey of self-discovery. Like sort of looking back doesn't seem any less silly now than it did two years ago or three years ago rather. So the soon-to-be Superman so goes away for a while trying to find himself, travels around the United States, works on a fishing boat, etc. Saves enough people to leave an urban legend trail for enterprising journalists to later follow before getting wind of what turns out to be an old crashed Kryptonian scout ship that fires off a number of plot strands. It puts Lois Lane on his trail and reveals to Clark details of his past and it puts Clark and Earth on the radar of General Zod and the surviving Klingon... Uh, Klingon? <laughs> Klingon! Um, surviving Krypton militia. So at this point, Clark decides to adopt the persona of Superman, the Superman that we know and love, just in time for Zod and his squad to show up and cause a ruckus. And they're looking to terraform the Earth 
our crypto form, the Earth, I guess, really, because it's yeah. already terraformed. <laughs> it's Earth, it's Terra. Um, it's something that's a bit more like Krypton and kill off all us little Earthlings in the process. So somebody better stop him. And well, there's obviously only one person that can be. Now, like most of Zack Snyder's films, it's divisive to say the least. It takes the usual Superman mythos in a few different directions, which wasn't universally well received. It's much darker in tone than the Christopher Reeve outing, certainly. Arguably more so than Christopher Nolan's Batmans. And it doesn't contain any of the wisecracks or inappropriate moments of levity that, for some reason, the Marvel Cinematic Deluge's trained audiences to expect, which could make it a little pole-faced, actually. It could possibly do... It doesn't need comedy, but it maybe needs humour. Um, yeah, just I mean, to leaven it slightly. So, um, I mean, if you compare this to the Batman films, there's another kind of levity that you get. Not, It's not forced levity or anything, but yeah, there's a certain camaraderie between guys like, uh, say, Christian Bale and uh, Michael Caine, which yeah. could leave in the tone just just the right amount, amount in places exactly. without feeling like it's just sort of like a joke shoehorned in for it. It feels like kind of natural. Yeah, there are some very subtle things in the Batman films too. The notable one is in The Dark Knight Rises, and it, it's, it's to do, uh, I think, it's a distinction that's for me not subtle at all but for too many people a bit subtle like the distinction between humor and wit and comedy yeah and the known films have bits of wit and humor and the, the notable one is when Catwoman disappears off the roof when yeah. um, Batman turns his head in the Dark Knight Rise and he says oh that's what that feels like <laughs> and Man of Steel sorely is in need of even just a few bits like that here and there because it's very very faced yeah superman himself is presented with much tougher moral choices to challenge his code of conduct and i think a lot of people didn't want to be challenged about the actual logistics of what happens when conflict on that scale occurs but biggest problem is possibly the amount of cg required for the city wrecking climax and i've said this before in other fuds and film podcasts and back in the one liner just when something ends up, and I think you're the same, Scott, something ends up in a big CGI thud fest and mm-hmm. it's like big CGI monsters knocking seven bells at each other. It's all just the CGI and I, I just switch off completely. Yeah, it's got to the point where we've seen that so many times. It just feels like character swaps by this point. You know, yeah. it's, it's now just a Mortal Kombat game occurring. And uh, yeah, I've, I've seen that enough times that I don't really need to see it anymore. So I'll start thinking about something more interesting at that point. I mean, the idea of, like, because it's why I mentioned it's so good in Superman 2, you've got Superman and Zod fighting each other. Whereas like, you know, Superman's a gen- got a genuine rival there. Something that's probably stronger than him is an experienced military commander, whereas Superman was raised by humans. That's, you know, it's interesting, it's actual peril there. Mm-hmm. But it just it becomes, it's such a big scale at the end, and it's, it's a, a, a yeah, CGI I mean, thing, punch the CGI thing. Yeah, I, and it ends now, and then it seems to like last four hours. I totally um, understand why they wrote it this way, but it just couldn't bring it out. I mean, it needs something spectacular and mm-hmm. you know, world-threatening to actually give Superman a challenge because he is Superman. Again, it's just this all writing itself into a corner thing. I see where they were going with this, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think it quite managed to pull it off. What I've always thought would be more interesting is if when, say, Zod punches Superman, rather than have him fly off through cities and stuff, right? you can have these spaceships going about crashing all over the place and such like, which if you want to get your you know, CJ spectacular, do that. But then rather when it's a fight between Superman and Zod, don't have them throw fling each other through buildings and such to have that just become a normal fist fight exactly yeah. exactly i was going to say too because yeah if superman punched say a human mm-hmm. apart from maybe it'd probably disintegrate maybe he'd send them back far enough but if there are people who are reasonably evenly matched well then there's going to be like two humans fighting each other surely 
and I think it would be a more satisfying ending for me. Anyway. Say you accept the, the terror or the Krypton farming going on around them um, in Metropolis and the, the big CJ things with the spaceships, etc. But just them in the middle on a human scale, more yeah. or less, just brawling, grazed knuckles and bloody noses and things. I think that would actually be a, a much more interesting, a bit, I mean, you know, a bit yeah. of born style hand-to-hand combat or something like that. Something, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? used the word brutal already visceral my favourite visceral that's exactly the word I'm looking for Scott thank you something more visceral just with the two actors there I think would have been a much more compelling climax yeah I mean I Um, think I I see hints that they kind of understand this because I mean how it ends is unarguably the best bit where it is really just them in a bear hug at the end um, Mm -hmm. and leading up to the discussion you know spoilers if you've not seen this already but where uh, Superman decides to do something which you wouldn't normally do actually kills Zod he breaks his neck because there's it's clear that there is no way to stop him other than doing that Mm -hmm. and this is kind of what I touched on earlier about them, you know, challenging the, the, the code of conduct. A lot of people really didn't like that. I thought it was one of the most interesting things the film did and could have went to a number of very interesting places in the films after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it kind of didn't, as it turns out, but I, I still think that, that is making the characters do something interesting that we've not done before is what we should be doing with these kind of characters. I mean, we've seen Superman up teen times before, we might as well do something a bit different with him. And it, it did to an extent, but it never quite followed through with it. And yes. the things that are around it just were a bit too flat to, to really sustain the interest over the whole film. Yeah, it's, it's flat is a, it's a good word. It's, it's lacking some real emotional peaks um, yeah. and even some action peaks. It just, yeah, the idea of like the... It was like it was kind of as my had at the time. A few people had, and other people argued. Oh, it doesn't happen. But it does. Is that you know, Superman's supposed to you know want to protect everybody, and there's no way that people weren't being killed in that yeah. fight at the end. Yeah, and say, yeah. Oh no, they got everybody out. Well, no, it's a city with millions of people that's being bombarded and things. People must have got hurt. Yeah, um, and it's potentially if they could have followed on with that. That Superman realizes that his actions in stopping Zod have actually caused people to die. That that's an interesting way to take the character after that is yeah. maybe the repercussions of that on on him, what he does, um, how he reacts to things. Mm-hmm. That could actually be genuinely interesting because while physically Superman's invulnerable and that's dull, if you start looking at more the psychological side of it, yeah, I think that could be a, a pretty compelling way to take it. It's like vulnerable mentally. Yes, works because you, you can't make them vulnerable physically without using those silly crystals again, and that's really dull. Yeah, for me, a, a bit of a missed opportunity because there, there are hints of things that are there, and yet, and Henry, Kevin Costner um, is watchable, and yeah. there's, there's some good performances. Amy Adams is pretty watchable, and Henry Cavill, he's got sort of a an air about him that seems to fit the role quite well. Yeah, I think he's well cast. I buy him as Superman in a way that I never bought Brandon Routh as Superman. Mm-hmm. You know, he just kind of immediately looks like the part. That, He's yeah. no Christopher Reeve. I think Christopher Reeve just was no. just got that role really well. It just yeah. seemed to work. But yeah, um, Henry Cavill, I, I do buy as Superman. Casting-wise, so I'll let you finish in just a moment. I just wanted to mention once more. Casting-wise, for me, the big disappointment though was Michael Shannon. Again, was uh, thinking about how memorable Terrence Stamp's Zod was. I am a really big Michael Shannon fan. I think mm-hmm. he's fantastic and you see him in stuff like uh, a film we saw a few years ago, a small film at the Edinburgh Film Festival, they get much this elsewhere, called um, The Missing Person. He's yeah. fantastic in that. He's fantastic as Nelson in Boardwalk Empire. Michael Shannon though, as a um, military commander stroke action 
hero or action villain didn't work for me I just, he seemed so out of place and I think that's a large part of why I found this film so disappointing yeah I probably liked him a little more than you in this role I thought he was okay but uh, yeah it's it's maybe less anything that he does as the role itself just doesn't quite pull off what he needs to do it's, again it's another one of these things I absolutely see where they're going with it they've, they've cast Zod as someone who is only ever doing what he wanted to do with his you know fanatical inbred desire to protect Krypton and mm-hmm. you know that that makes sense and uh, uh, this is kind of why I liked some of the bits on Krypton earlier as well because it dives more into that society and how you know everyone's bred for a purpose and that there's not been any natural births Superman's the first natural birth in well, I can't remember what it said hundreds of years or whatever and so he's he's bred this way there's there's not really anything that Zod can do to change his uh, personality and what he's mm-hmm. his actions and it's, th- there's lots of interesting aspects there but it doesn't capitalise on it it's, it just becomes another grunting bad guy towards the end of it and just screams about how he wants revenge upon Superman for some reason uh, again I, I see where they're going with lots of elements in this I think there's so there's lots of these elements that I find quite intriguing about Man of Steel I think there's a film in here that is really good but what they've actually made is kind of covering up most of the good bits and produce something that's I mean it's certainly not a bad film but it's not much above mediocre it's a missed opportunity because there are some really tantalising moments here that's like stuff that at least on the big screen I don't know for the comics but at least on the big screen you've not seen Superman tested in quite this way and it's not done the same things with the characters and I, like, mm. I just I just want them to, to grab that and go with it because that's the interesting stuff and it seems to be what they've largely avoided in the end at least some of it does uh, get paid forward into the recent release which is you know the reason we're doing this podcast just cluttering up multiplexes around you will be Batman versus Superman Zack Snyder following on from Man of Steel and finally hitting that crossover goal that DC and Warner Brothers have been trying to reach for, I believe, at least something like 20 years. Hmm. Uh, there's a separate podcast about failed projects that never got started that would be interesting to do one day if we could work out a way to do it. But yeah, there's a lot of interesting backstory we've kind of covered with, uh, which if nothing else, gave us that wonderful scene of Nick Cage in the Superman outfit, which is worth looking up if you haven't seen that already. Um, so Henry Cavill returns as Superman. He's now revealed to the world after the carnage at the end of the last film and largely seen as a protector, a guard and a saviour with all the connotations that the last word entails. The unveiling of superpowered aliens has caused some concern, particularly amongst Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor, who's rather more Zuckerbergian in character in this incarnation, and Braflex's Bruce Batman Wayne, who witnesses the downsides of being collateral damage in a battle between gods when Zod and Superman casually wipe out one of his office towers, including a lot of his employees. Uh, this film doesn't shy away from the fact that a lot of people died in Metropolis as a result of that battle. Uh, unfortunately, it's rather using that to look into the people that it affected rather than Superman itself, which is perhaps one of my biggest disappointments with the film. At any rate, Luther starts pulling some strings and before long, Batman and Superman are on a collision course which leads to the headline fight, which of course then leads to them coming to an understanding to join up and face an even greater threat as the subtitle implies with the Dawn of Justice, uh, as Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman also joins the Proto-Justice League for the final showdown as we find out that there are indeed other highly powered metahumans knocking about 
as this film single-handedly attempts to create a DC universe to rival the likes of Marvel's. And that is probably the film's biggest structural flaw, as there's a few very notable occasions where it slows right down to show off something that's not going to be paid off in this film. It's almost certainly not going to be paid off later in this year with Suicide Squad. And if these touches had been rather lighter, it may have helped trim off some fat from the running time. And particularly, uh, there's an effectively told but almost entirely tangential couple of sequences where Bruce Wayne is imagining or dreaming or perhaps viewing an alternate universe, it's a bit hard to say, where Superman is a tyrannical dictator. But the only other bone I've really got to pick with it is the all-too-common reliance of superhero films to wind up with CG actors thumping CG monsters as a climax, which I've seen too much of to care about at this point. Um, again, not really that Batman vs Superman CG is worse than any others, but there's none of the heft to it as you saw with Nolan's films and their practical effects. So it's, that's really the same criticism as we had with uh, Man of Steel. I uh, did you see this, Drew? I've not seen it yet, unfortunately, right. so I don't, I'm not going to get a chance to see it yeah. until tomorrow. Okay, so I know there's one thing you'll be particularly fond of when there's some big silly CG monster towards the end of it. And do you know what the first thing he does is? Oh, please tell me it doesn't turn to the camera and roar. Well, that's exactly what he does. How, how, however, could you predict that? Yeah, so oh, I hate that so much. Yeah, I... so my my main feeling on Batman, uh, Batman versus Superman, and there's obviously been an awful lot of negative reaction to this film already. But for me, this is two hours of a film that I think works really, really well. And it was one of the most enjoyable two hours I've had in watching a comic book film in some time. And then there's half an hour of it, which isn't really very good at all. And unfortunately, it's the last half hour, at least a bit of a sore note in the mouth as you leave the cinema. But lots of things work really well. Jesse Eisenberg and, and in particular Ben Affleck, two casting choices that were questioned in the same way that, uh, I guess, George Clooney's was back in the day. But they both work really, really well. And if it wasn't for Christian Bale... Ben Affleck would be the best Batman there has been. It's also particularly interesting to join a Batman at the tail end of his career, and the nods to this version's history add a real intrigue to his character. Things like padding past uh, a display cabinet that's got a, a set of his bat suit that the Joker's graffitied on. Uh, things like that, which like prompt lots of questions that we'd really like to actually see what happened to Batman in this one, in this universe that they've created. Also positive, the titular fight between Batman and Superman is great, and also a later dismantling of some of Lex Luthor's goons is, well, both combined are two of the best Batman fights yet seen, and in particular the latter of the two mentioned, which issues the more, uh, hesitate to say it, but grounded combat, say, of Nolan's Batman film. Not that it's hugely realistic, but you could imagine something like a Batman fight scene from Batman Begins or, or such, like showing up in a Jet Li film, for example, without you know, it being too much out of place. The fights in this one are closer to perhaps the Arkham uh, Asylum and City games, uh, mm -hmm. where Batman's wielding all these gadgets that he's got. He you know, fires off gadgets, it's disabled guns, people are getting battered around by grappling hooks and thrown around. It's a really great, fun fight. Uh, you know, it's a, a real change of pace for the film, um, although you probably wouldn't want to watch a film full of it. That would be, become, I think, a bit tiring. That does bring me to another perceived flaw, I think, rather than an actual flaw. Uh, I think it's a strength. Uh, rather like Zack Snyder's Watchmen, it is not wall-to-wall -wall action, which uh, perhaps it's kind of sold on. Even the title would imply it. But while the fight scenes and action scenes that are, there, that are there are really good, apart from the ending, which you'll get to, there are lots of moments of introspection at the internal mm -hmm. lives and motivations of the protagonists, and it does take them as seriously as Nolan took his uh, characters seriously. And... 
Unfortunately, it does seem that people have become conditioned by Marvel's output to expect nice bright colours and breezy banter, and all of that is distinctly lacking in BVS. But for my money, that makes it a more remarkable and a better film than its competition, but of course your mileage may vary. I certainly think that much like Man of Steel, it could use a few moments of uh, the wit that is just as absent from this as it is another one. There's no real... there's very... well... There's very few moments of levity, and the few ones that are there, you've seen in the trailers. Um, there's not a lot of wit here. It's all it's all very uh, straight laced, which it could do perhaps with uh, maybe cutting loose on a few occasions. The only real bit of uh, joy you can see is perhaps from Jesse Eisenberg's performance, which is wonderfully unhinged. So, in a general sense. Batman vs Superman combines the aesthetic of Man of Steel with elements of the thematic content of Watchmen, but both of course were very divisive films, so on some level I can understand why this has met a similar fate. Um, but rather like my opinion on both of those films, I can't quite get my head around why you wouldn't at least like it on some level. The action's not constant, but when it shows up it's all the more impactful from it, and it does treat its characters as actual characters rather than spandex-clad kung fu monkeys. <laughs> so yes, Batman vs Superman isn't as good as Nolan's works to be sure, but it's leagues ahead of most of the identical Marvel output, and I think really does not deserve the, the bad press that it gets. Um, of course the bad press has not diminished it in the slightest, at least on its first weekend. It's had a tremendously successful opening weekend. Uh, the most successful kind of Easter opening I think there has been. The interesting thing, I guess, will be show off how next week's results come in, whether there's been a huge drop-off about word of mouth. But I mean, I think the general sense is that audiences quite like it, even if critics don't. Uh, mm-hmm. And in this instance, I am more on the audience's side than the critics. I'm quite intrigued about the fight, though, because that's one of the things I've seen the most negative talk about, is that so many people seem to think that the Superman-Batman fight is a massive anti-climax. I just thought it was really cleverly done. Again, the the standard issue of how do you, how do you treat Superman? Well, you have to be cleverer than him. Superman's not really around for his brain, so that's why you know Wayne's he, he develops the the tools and develops the traps to to get rid of him. Yeah. There's there is a bit of norm towards the end of it where they kind of realise that they have a common goal, which you know, is, is a little bit tenuous. But I can forgive it that. Because the rest, the last five minutes before it was just so good. Actually, a lot of people seem to think it's quite an anticlimax, but I'm thinking that from what you're saying about it so far, it might be sort of more my sort of thing. Again, mm. like more towards the the fist, the visceral brawl that I mentioned earlier for the end of Man of Steel instead of the yeah, exactly. massive CGI thump fest I think other people wanted. Yeah. Um, that sounds much more interesting to me, so I'm quite intrigued to find out what I actually think of that. Yeah, I look forward to that. We should maybe do a follow-up on that perhaps uh, in the podcast a bit later on. Um, but yes, I, I really quite enjoyed it. I can't quite get on board with the, the trade of hate that this one's building up as well, and I think it does a pretty reasonable job in what it's doing. It's, as I kind of mentioned, it is trying to single-handedly create this kind of this universe and it could really have done without that. I don't really see what spending 10 to 15 minutes of, you know, essentially introductions to the films that they're planning to do over the next uh, five years or so. I don't really see why you needed to do them. You could just have done those in the story. I mean, I know you want to try and do the Justice League films next, but there's easier ways to introduce them into that film rather than this one. And I don't think it really helps. I mean, surely having, I think having the three characters, your Superman, your Batman and your Wonder Woman is enough to get started with. And you could have just left with that. 
Um, especially when it's far more intriguing when you know Wonder Woman essentially just shows up more or less and we don't really get to hear a lot of her backstory and I'm quite interested to hear what that will be rather than have it you know try to fairly tenuously try and uh, put it in on a computer file as happens in this film which is you know just just kind of silly and yeah th- that just takes up a lot of time that it doesn't need to do it two and a half hours it is too long it could have done with being you know, at least half an hour chopped out of that and I think you could have done that quite easily Mm-hmm. especially given that it's not the most quickly paced film in the world but yeah as I say I like something occasionally that's a bit more ponderous a bit more like Watchmen where it's more about the characters internal lives and their motivations and uh, their how they can be manipulated into doing certain things uh, by people who have bad intent and I think that in general I think that worked much better than I thought it would do certainly Batman versus Superman as I say it's, it's still well below Nolan's output but I still think it deserves mention alongside it which is not something that we'll say about too many films mm-hmm. and certainly not too many films that we've covered in this podcast. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's certainly one of the more interesting takes on the both the characters and I think deserves at least your attention to watch it, even if you do wind up not liking it. I think you will still find that it was at least an interesting experiment to see where they could go with these kind of things. So yeah, on that basis, it's, it's worth a trip to the cinema. Okay then, I think we've been in your ear holes for quite long enough now talking about Batman and Superman. We will return shortly with a commentary track featuring one of these superheroes and then our regular schedule will continue after that. If you want to contact us, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fudsonfilm. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash fudsonfilm. You can email us at podcast at fudsonfilm.com and you can... If you want, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever, SoundCloud or wherever you happen to get your podcasts from. If you have any issues with their podcast, any questions you'd like to ask us, any responses to what we've talked about, we welcome your feedback and we will otherwise be speaking to you very shortly. So for now, it's goodbye. Bye-bye.